0: Slash /conference. I hope to see you there. Hey friends, the top advice that I hear from my guests on how to be successful in your career is to keep networking and never stop learning. I think the best place to do those things is at conferences and that's why I'm starting my own conference later this year called the Talent Development Think Tank. It is going to be a place where talent development and HR professionals can come together to network, to learn, to grow to find out about the latest trends, benchmark their performance against other things that are happening in the industry, learn best practices, and solve real problems. That's right, we will be facilitating interactive, engaging sessions where people can learn from each other and solve real challenges that they're dealing with in their business. If you'd like to be part of it, we'd love to have you. It is going to be November 6th and 7th in Sonoma, California, and you can find tickets at talentdevelopmentthinktank.com. I hope to see you there. Welcome to the Talent Development Huts a show where I interview business executives, talent development professionals, and thought leaders to find out what has been successful and challenging in the world of talent development. My objective is to share ideas, valuable lessons, tools, advice, and trends. My hope is that all of this will ultimately help you, the listener, expand your knowledge, grow your career, and accelerate your success as a talent development professional. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I am so excited that you are joining me today because I have a great conversation for you with Michael Bungay-Stanier. And Michael is the founder of Boxer Crayons, a company known for teaching 10-minute coaching to busy leaders and managers so they can build better teams and more effective organizational cultures. He left Australia 26 years ago to be a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University where his only significant achievement was falling in love with a Canadian which is why he now lives in Toronto. Having spent time in London and Boston, Michael has written a number of books. His latest, the Wall Street Journal bestseller, The Coaching Habit, which has sold over 600,000 copies, has been praised as one of the few business books that make people laugh. And uh, I can agree with that. I've read it. That did make me laugh as well. (laughs) Speaking of laughing, balancing out these moments of success, Michael was banned from his high school graduation for the balloon incident, was sued by one of his law school lecturers for defamation, and his first published piece of writing was a Harlequin romance short story called The Mail Delivery. I don't know if we're going to talk about that one today. Uh, Michael, welcome to the Talent Development
1: Hot Seat. I'm so happy to be here. It's such a hot seat that I'm actually standing up this entire interview. That's how hot it is. But yeah, thank you. I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah. And you've got a hoodie on to keep you a little bit warmer.
1: Well, that's right. I live in, I live in Canada. I, I love my wife. I love Toronto. I love Canada in many ways, but I could do with better weather here.
0: Yeah, I I hear you. Uh, And I'm down in Florida where it's like boiling hot right now. So uh, I'm a little jealous of you, but I know come wintertime, you'd probably rather be here. Um, All right. So we have so much to talk about. Uh, We've gotten a chance to chat a little bit before and get to know each other. And uh, I am excited. I didn't put in that intro, but excited to announce also that you are going to be speaking at my conference, the Talent Development Think Tank this November. So good. Yeah, really excited about that. And I want to dive into what you'll be covering there, especially some of the stuff from your book. But I have to start with the balloon incident. You got banned from high school graduation. What happened?
1: You know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to tell you because this story is much better as a tantalizing, it's the balloon incident in inverted commas. And if I tell you, it's like it was a thing involving balloons. It was a very minor piece it's one of my first brushes with authority. You know, one of the, the values I have, I found out, is a sense of fairness and fair treatment. And there's been a few times I've bumped up against authorities and just have felt that it was a, a heavy-handed abuse of authority and power and really rubbed me the wrong way. And this was one of those moments. It was a really minor thing we were doing in my, my graduation in high school, and the over heavy-handed response was to ban me and a few other people from coming to our actual graduation. Like we've been loyal servants of the school and students for six years, and we did one silly thing that hurt nobody, did no harm. And I was like, "Ah, oh, that's terrible." And same with you know, same with being sued by a law school lecturer for defamation, and so it goes. And you know, when it comes to the work I do in organisations now, there's one part of me that is about here's the truth about organisational life. It's preference is to have people who follow the rules, do their job, do their work, don't make a, a ruckus, and just kind of start a day and get to B, and that's kind of what they're there for. And so much of the work I've done from an earlier book of mine called Do More Great Work to the work around the coaching piece is about how do we bring ourselves to work, how do we bring our humanity to work, how do we follow the rules that matter and don't follow the rules that don't matter? And how do we be a little bit rebellious in our own space as well? So it's all kind of entangled in there.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. And you're, you mentioned fairness and equality, something that has been talked about for decades, but is gaining more and more ground. And it seems like we are you know getting closer to that than we ever have been before. Yep. That was also the reason behind the incident you had in law school where you were, you were sued for defamation as well, right? That's right. So again, it
1: was me and a group of people protesting about something that uh, one of the lecturers was was talking about. It was, in the big scheme of things, not that important. But the act that we had, which was we went to the dean of the law school and went, look, we'd like this guy to stop teaching this thing in this way because it's upsetting for people. Their response to that was, his response to that was suing me particularly for defamation and the law school's response to that was to go, "Oh my god, let's <laughs> bury our head in the sand and pretend this isn't working." And it just felt a really poor use of power. And you know, I, I am a tall, white, straight, over-educated, middle-class dude, so I've got a—you know—I've got the entire force of the patriarchy behind me, making my life better than it might be. And there's a lot of people who who don't have the privileges that I get by just the way I was born and if I'm like and this is happening to me, who's one of the lucky ones, how does it play out for other people who for whatever reasons don't quite have the same access to authority and to power and to influence and what do we need to do to shift that and you know I mean I don't want to make it sound like this is all I do is talk about it, but is it kind of one of those deep rhythms that runs through the work and how I want to show up. Yeah. It's the foundation
0: for everything that you've, you've built.
1: Well, you know, it's depressing when you walk onto a plane and you walk through the first class section of the plane and they all look like me, (laughs) you know, they're all like, they're all 50 year old white men. And I know they've worked hard and they're smart and they're talented people and they've got authority and that's why they're there and, and good for them. But it's just like it just there's gotta be something systemically wrong that just allows that to keep happening. Yeah. And you know, we work with organizations and I and I like the work we do with organizations, it's important. The work that drives me is to allow people to have more impact, do work that matters more to them, that enables them to as one of my mentors, Peter Block would say, "Give people responsibility for their own freedom. Allow them to step into that place where they can be the best version of themselves."
0: Yeah, I love that. And you know, coaching, of course, is a great way to make an impact with the people around you, right. whether you are officially a manager or a peer or you know anyone. And so, how did you make that shift? How did you? I know you you moved to the states after law school. How did you get into coaching? And how did all this start?
1: Well. There's a quote that I I say often when I'm being interviewed, which is inspiration is when your past suddenly makes sense. So, you know, for all those people who are like, I don't know what I want to do when I grow up, even when you're 30 or 40 or 50, there's a way that where you've been so far is pointing to where you might go to. And my journey towards being involved in coaching really happened early on. You know, as a teenager, I would end up spending hours in the car with my teenage friends and having them talk about their angsty teenage lives. Because, you know, what is a teenager if it's not about an angsty life? And I was just pretty good at listening. You know, I was a sympathetic ear, a sympathetic shoulder. But as I sat there, I'm like, I just do not know what I'm doing here. I mean, I'm sympathetic, but there's part of me is going, could I be doing something that would be more effective? (laughs) And there's part of me that's going, can I do something that would wrap this conversation up? Because it's 2 a.m. and I want to go home with this person's like droning on about their lives. So when I went to university in Australia, I got trained in a kind of youth crisis telephone helpline. So, you know, kids, my age and, and younger, feeling depressed or feeling suicidal. And that's what introduced me to just some foundational Therapeutic practices, and uh, it's called and therapy, which is effectively just asking questions and going, whatever's on the surface is more beneath the surface. And that's a principle of coaching, really. And I carried that on when I won my scholarship from Australia took me to take me to Oxford, and I was involved there for a bit. And then when I got my first job in, the, in England, I noticed coaching arising in California because it hadn't hit England yet in the, in the 90s. I was like, well, that looks like, a I don't know, some weird Californian cult thing. But I was intrigued and um, kept my eye on it. And then when I moved from London to, the, to Boston to, to work, which is now in the late 90s, I actually hired a coach and went, I'm going to give this a go and see what it's like. And it became apparent that actually being a coach was something that was similar to how I wanted to show up with the people I worked. So as a consultant, I kind of renamed a bunch of things I did with my clients coaching. And then I moved to Toronto in 2001, trained to be a coach with a, a coaching school, built a coaching practice, and then went, this is not actually what I want to be doing, which was a real surprise. I was like, I'm pretty sure that I've been trained all my life to be a coach and have a coaching practice. Yeah. And then I'm like, okay, I've got 30 clients. I'm making, I'm making a decent living and I'm bored. And I just feel like I'm not living up to my potential by having these conversations. And that's kind of what took me into the world of teaching and training and learning and development because I'm a pretty good coach, but I wouldn't say that I was an extraordinary coach. I have my moments, but there are some people I know who just have a level of presence and mastery and empathy and sympathy that I don't have and insight. But it turns out that I am good at writing books. I am good at Making uh, translating ideas and tools to make them simple and accessible and practical. I do, I'm a good speaker. Like, I I like being on stage, I'm entertaining. That's why I'm so excited to be part of the conference that you're putting on because when you come to this conference, it's going to be a really practical, interactive, fun session. So, I love the performance. I give good talk or something. <laughs> yeah. So, I think of uh, Jim Collins, who wrote The Good to Great Books, and the other books that sound like good to great, but are slightly different. And one of those books, he shares a metaphor about how you figure out what you want to do with your life or what you want to do with a project. And he calls it the bullets, cannonballs metaphor. And he says, look, what you need to be doing or what he suggests is you should be firing bullets and then firing cannonballs. Bullets are the small, low-cost, low-risk experiments that allow you to test out hypotheses. The cannonball is when you find your target and you go, right, I figured out where I want to go. Now, let me commit. And that's where you fire the cannonball. And Jim Collins basically says, look, most people either they fire their cannonball too soon. They go, oh, I've just got this idea. I'm just going to mortgage my house and sell my kids into white slavery and then see how it goes. Right. And fingers crossed. (laughs) And of course, your first idea is almost never the right idea. You always have to change and pivot and evolve and, and shift a little bit. Yep. Or he says, people don't ever fire the cannonball. They kind of hone in on the target and then they lose the nerve. They don't have the courage to commit. That's kind of what's awesome about the conference, right? Because I don't know. We don't know each other that well. Yep. But it does feel to me reading your announcement of I'm going to do this conference is it's a bit of a cannonball moment.
0: It's a big cannonball
1: moment. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, look, if I'm actually committed to talent development, if I'm really standing for this, what would it mean to fire the cannonball? And it's like, damn it, I'm going to put on a conference because it is an enormous thing to put on a conference. Yeah. So I'm finding. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Like, you've got to deal with people like me, prima donnas who like want to (laughs) speak. You've got (laughs) to figure out the finances and go, I don't want to lose money on this. That's right. You got to find your audience and you got to start marketing. You got to build a brand.
0: If you work in talent development, you know that your job has become more important than ever. The problem is there's so much uncertainty and noise out in the business world, and things are changing so fast. It's hard to know where to go and what tools and resources to use to solve your problems. That's why I recently launched the Talent Development Think Tank Community as a central and safe place to access information ask questions, and talk with other L&D professionals like you so that you can achieve your goals and accelerate your career. Join today to get instant access to our online platform and community of ambitious, helpful talent development professionals who understand your world and can help you solve your problems. Right now, I'm offering 25% off the subscription price to podcast listeners. Just go to talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT for 25% off. That's talent and use code HOTSEAT. Thanks and on to the episode. Because
1: it's the first time it's being run. So, honestly, people who are listening, you're like, it is really cool to say, I went to the first conference of X. Like, can you imagine if you went to the first TED conference? How cool would that be? That's right. Right? So, this is your moment. Sign up for the first conference of, of X. Yeah. But it's a cannonball moment. So, that's kind of what's, so, what's cool to celebrate
0: this. I love that, and I appreciate that. Yeah, the first talent development think tank. And if we don't sell enough tickets, I might have to sell my kids into slavery, right? So uh, and mortgage the house. So <laughs> it is. A, it is a cannonball, and I appreciate that. And I, I'm big on taking big risks and trying things because we only get one shot, pun intended. Yeah. And uh, you know why not? I I think I would I would regret it. I know this is this is a need. There's an opportunity. If I don't take a chance, then I'll regret that more than I would regret failure. But so far, tickets are selling. And we've got some awesome speakers lined up like you. Thanks, Trey. Hey, everybody. For the past year, I have interviewed dozens of great talent development leaders from around the world. And at the same time, Advantage Performance Group has been creating free resources aimed at helping leaders multiply intelligence, influence more effectively, build emotional intelligence, improve their culture, and more. Their handy 2019 resource kit contains all of these things, including access to our culture quest, many learning journeys, our most popular webinar replays, and the five trends shaping the future of your workforce. And now you can get all of these free resources in one kit by going to advantageperformance.com slash 2019. That's advantageperformance.com slash 2019. And now back to the show. Going back to the book, you may, you know, this idea of uh, writing books and you mentioned, you know, firing bullets and cannonballs. Yeah. I know you had some books that were traditionally published and then you self published this last book. And I know a lot of my listeners, I've gotten to know a lot of people in talent development. There are a lot of people out there who do a lot of research. They have some points of views on things, they have jobs where they think, I'm kind of testing some stuff on the side. I think I might have a book in me. I don't know if I could go out and get a traditional publisher, but you self published your last book. And you've sold over 600,000 copies. Can you just tell me a little bit about what that process looked like and why that happened?
1: Sure. So I self-published the very first book I put out. It's called Get Unstuck and Get Going. And it was a cannonball moment for me. I'd been left $30,000 from my, my grandfather. And I was like, you know what? I'm prepared to l- spend this money and lose it. on publishing this book because I think it's a good idea and I'm committing to it. And then... The book that sold probably the second to the coaching habit with about a hundred thousand copies sold is Do More Great Work. And I self-published a version of that. And then it got found by a publisher, a New York publisher, and got picked up. So that was exciting. And I then spent three years pitching the coaching habit back to workmen. I was like, this is gonna be a good book. And they just did not get excited about it. And it didn't matter what I tried to do, and and I pitched different versions of the book. Eventually, I got to that point where I'm like, and this is a very liberating moment. I no longer care whether you say yes or no. I need you to say yes or no. Not maybe and come back and have another go because that's what was killing me. So they said no, which I was gutted by at the time. Turns out that that was a great answer (laughs) because I was then going, right, I'm going to self-publish this book. But... It's easy to self-publish a book these days. You know, If you can figure out how to do a PDF document, you can self-publish a book. It's less easy to self-publish a really good book, one that is robust enough in design, and feel, and structure, and distribution that people actually go, I didn't know that that was self-published. And my goal with this book was to say, I'm gonna do this as a professional. I'm gonna invest money, I'm gonna invest time, I'm going to fully commit to this book being... I'm going to... I'm terrible, right? I'm going to go all in on doing this book in a non-half-hearted way. So it was paying for an editor, paying for a designer, paying for distribution, committing to do 2 years of podcasts, you know,
0: in terms of I'm going to market this book for 2 years. Yeah, you got to do all the marketing too. A lot of people think you just put a book up there and then people are going to go buy it, right? doesn't happen. Oh, here's the thing. Writing a book is
1: excruciating until you discover what it's like to market it. And then you go, writing the book is the easy part. And in fact, I spend a fair amount of time when people go, I want to write a book too. I will often say, look, do you really? Because I am all for people finding ways to get their ideas and their point of views out into the world. Because we need people who've got thoughts, who've got originality, who help us collectively move forward in terms of how we show up. So that is the right momentum. That's the right thing to be driven by. A book is just one avenue you can choose to to create through. And there are—it's like an incredible number of books published month. It's like five thousand business books are published every month in the U.S. Yeah, I think that's the number. Maybe five thousand every week. I believe it. it Maybe five thousand every hour. It wouldn't surprise me. Because everybody goes, I'm going to publish a book. And look, I could be famous. And the thing is, you will not be famous. I mean, even like the Coaching Habit sold 600,000 copies. That is a freak outlier result. I wish I knew how I did that. I mean, I have some idea of how I did that. And part of it is like, it's my fifth book. I've spent 20 years building a brand. I spent two years marketing it like a crazy weasel. I had a really clear idea who my audience was. I've polish my way of thinking that I can produce stuff that has a hook to it, that has some substance to it, all of that. And it's still a freaky outlier result. Yeah. If people are super keen about this, I actually wrote a really long article called how I sold 180,000 copies of my book and doubled my business. So on a, a blog called Growth Lab. And it's like a 7,000-word article. So people are like, how did he market it? How did he do this? I've set it all out for you and how much it costs. But the big picture is to go, look, create because we need creators. We, we need you to get your thoughts and your point of view and your kind of small kind of ding into the world out there. I love that. Yeah. A book, I mean, you write a first draft. It is miserable because it's not nearly as good as you thought it was going to be. You've got this book in your head and then your first draft is really disappointing. So you write a second draft. It's worse than your first draft. You're going <laughs> you're going backwards. You write a third draft and there's a, there's a minute improvement, but now you're beginning to loathe yourself and loathe the book. By the time you're on your fifth draft, you're like, it's better, but am I polishing a I'm not going to say that on the podcast, like, but am I, yeah. is there anything here at all? Or am I just regurgitating bleedingly obvious ideas that have not a spark of interest to them? And then by the time you get to your seventh draft, if you've got the discipline, which you need to have to write a seventh draft, because that's how your book gets better. You write a bad book, and then you write a slightly less bad book, and then you get towards a good book. You're, you're like, I can barely stand to reread my own writing. And then... You put it out there into the world. And 90, this is a statistic I heard maybe 10 years ago. So it's generous. 93% of books sell less than 1,000 copies. Right. I'm going to guess now it's like 98% of books sell less than 1,000 copies. So almost nobody's going to read your book. So is this the best use of your time? And it might be. Because if you're like, I want a book, I want to be able to point to my bookshelf and go, there's my book. I wrote that book. That's my book. I'm a legend, then awesome, write a book. Or if you're like, I'm gonna I'm just gonna do this because I have got fifty people in this world who need to know that I have a book in this world and they're gonna see this book and they're gonna go, you know, you are awesome, Andy. Or whatever your reason is, right. but be really clear why you've got a motivation to write your book. I knew for me, A, I had something to say, B, I had a business that was gonna benefit from this book, whether or not I sold a single copy. Right. Because if I sold not on a single copy, I would be selling my coach training
0: programs. You give it to clients and you put it out there at events and want to do work with you. Exactly. So I knew why I was writing this book and that really helps. Yeah. I, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, this is an outlier. You know, I know there, there may be there's some luck involved, but I know you also put a lot of work into it and you, you kind of knew what you were doing and you wrote that article. But I appreciate that you also mentioned the 20 years leading up to that because it reminds me of my revelation over the years is, is what I've learned about the, uh, the quote overnight success is the, you know, the formula for being an overnight success is to work for 20 years. And then one day someone goes, Oh, who's that guy? Where'd he come from? He's an overnight success.
1: Right. Like I, I reached out to you and went, Hey, Andy, I'd love to come and speak at your conference. And I think your reaction was, I, who are you?
0: Who are you? Exactly. <laughs> right
1: So I spent 20 years trying to build my name and, and reputation in the talent development space you're literally building a conference because you're in a space. You've never heard of me. I have one of the best-selling coaching books ever. Well, that's on me. But I have read the book since then. But no, 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 no. This is not meant to be on you at all. Yeah. It's just meant to be that almost nobody knows who you are. Right. And it takes forever. And all your overnight success are all exhausted. <laughs> They've been working for 20 years. You know, right. Uh, Liz Wiseman, brilliant. And Multipliers was her first book. And it was a big breakthrough for her.
0: This episode of the Talent Development Hot Seat is sponsored by Advantage Performance Group. Advantage is the first place to call when you need leaders to lead, sellers to sell, and your business to flourish. We specialize in connecting organizations with exceptional learning solutions to help them turn strategy into action and get their people doing the best work of their lives. And we're also proud to be providing tons of great content and inspiration to you and everyone out there during troubled times. You can go to advantageperformance.com to find any of our weekly webinars, insights, white papers, and blogs we've been putting out to help you survive and thrive during challenging times. That website, again, is advantageperformance.com. And now back to the show.
1: But she has, you know, she's my age, she's like in her fifties and she's been working for 40 years to generate insight, reputation, connections, presence.
0: The connections and social proof, so important because you're right. I I didn't know who you were. I've since read your book and I'm very impressed with your work. Um, But you also were connected with Liz. She spoke highly of you. I know the two of you are friends. And so that's like instant social proof. Like, okay, Liz is amazing. If she says nice things about you and she's introduced me to some other great guests that I've had on this podcast, then it doesn't matter if I didn't know who they were before. Right. I'm going to go check them out and now I know you have great work. That's right. And, I, and I've spent 10 years building a friendship with Liz
1: Wiseman. Not so that I could finally land the gig on Andy.
0: <laughs> on this podcast.
1: Yeah, because she's an awesome person. And partly she's like open to it because I've been writing and because I've been building a brand and the like. Right. You know, I reckon that if you write a really good book you work really hard to market it and sell it you're committed to it you work your network you build your network you build an email list you should be able to sell twenty thousand copies I reckon that's a a year's hard work you'll get twenty thousand copies out there if you think that you're probably going to make somewhere between one and three dollars a book that's about sixty thousand dollars in revenue you could buy a car look at that that's right but don't forget that it's taking you 60,000 hours to earn $60,000 gross because then you're going to pay tax on that. Right. So if you're doing it for the money, it's actually cheaper to get a Starbucks geek. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You're more likely to be successful.
0: Yeah, right. Don't do it for the money. I, I agree. Um, let's talk about the book and you know what you put in there and the, the impact it's making. I'd love to hear your perspective on like why you wrote the book and what's in there. But one of the things you said is this is about essentially helping managers work smarter and you know, have a big impact by working even less than they thought they had to in terms of coaching their people, right?
1: Oh, yeah. We have three principles in our approach to coaching. Be lazy, be curious, be often. And be lazy is always provocative. because People are like, you know, I'm a hard worker, I'm ambitious, I'm trying to do my best. But it's like, how do we get you working less hard? And actually, being smarter about the the impact that you're having in this world. I mean, if you peel that back a little further, Andy, part of what this is about is making coaching not an HR thing, but a business thing. It's a leadership thing. It's a core leadership behaviour. Coaching often get comes with a bunch of baggage attached. You know, one of the things I sometimes say is I'm trying to unweird coaching because it does come with a bunch of baggage around, oh, you're or, you're gonna be a touchy feely or the real life coach or You're an executive coach and that means a certain thing or you're a sports coach and that means a certain thing. But for me, what this is about is finding a way of showing up on a day-to-day basis with somebody. And the definition we have of coaching is, can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? Because most people are terrible at staying curious. They are advice-giving maniacs. They're wired to give advice.
0: Yeah. In the book, you talk about the advice monster and the biggest mistake most managers make, right, is, is jumping to advice.
1: Right. So the new book that I'm working on at the moment is actually called The Advice Trap. It's going to feature the advice monster heavily. And I thought about calling it the advice monster, but it's just it's, it's called The Advice Trap. And it's about shifting your behavior so that you resist the temptation to leap in to give advice. Not that it's bad to give advice. There is a, many places to give advice. I've just spent 20 minutes rabbiting on about, with advice about book publishing. So like, there's a place for advice, but I'm just saying, can you slow down the rush to giving advice? Yeah. Because when you do, you break the three vicious circles that managers and leaders face. They face an over-dependent team, a team that is too reliant on them, keeps coming to them going, can you solve this for me? Can you fix that for me? Can you do my work for me? Or you have a sense of overwhelm. I've just got too much on my plate. Almost everybody can relate to that. Or sometimes there's a sense of disconnect, which is I'm not sure why I'm doing the thing I'm doing anymore because am I just a small cog in a really big machine? And what coaching does is it allows you to find focus, get really clear on what the challenge is that you're, you're facing. It's about giving empowerment. So you allow the people who should be doing the work to do the work. And it's about getting better solutions, so that once you know what the challenge is, and you know what the solutions are or what your options are, you actually get the best chance to implement the smartest thing.
0: Yeah, so it's about finding that that best solution. Now, you have uh, you talk about you know, the risk, the the downside of jumping to advice too too soon, and the in the importance of curiosity and asking a lot of questions, which is something that I have discovered as a, a strength of mine, which is why I enjoy doing the podcast because I just love asking questions. Yeah, um, but I have also when I was reading your book, I was like, oh my gosh, I have given so many people so much advice when I should have been right asking questions. And you put in the book there there are five key questions, right? And I think this lends to what you'll be talking about right. at the conference as well, right? So what are those big questions we need to think about asking?
1: So in the book, I've got seven questions. At the conference, I'm going to be sharing five questions. So the, the session I'm I'm running at, the conference is the five question leader. I'm going to take people through these five questions and give them a sense, an experiential sense of just why they're so powerful. And all right, this is me boasting because I just got this email this morning. So I ran a workshop at ATD, so the big uh, Association for Talent Development, so the big conference. And they just sent me my numbers back and they gave this, we had like 600 people in the room, they gave this, they rated it 4.98 for usefulness and 4.95 for me being on stage. So just to say the people listening in, it's going to be great. And I'm not going to give you the five questions because you need to come to the conference to find out what the five questions are. I love it. But I'm going to give you the two questions that aren't the five questions. So the two questions in the book that aren't the five questions. Because in the, in the conference, and the five questions, I'm going to be sharing the bookend combination, which is how do you start a conversation really powerfully, and how do you finish it in a way that really sticks the learning and sticks the landing? I'm going to be sharing the focus combination, so you get to go deeper, faster, and find out what the real challenge is. And I'm going to be sharing the foundation question, which is really what will motivate people to act on the stuff that you want them to do. But I'm not going to tell you what those questions are. You can buy the book or you can come to the conference. The two questions that aren't in the in the workshop that I'll be running with Andy. One is the strategic question, and it's a great question because what strategy is about, and strategy exists at an individual level, a team level, a unit level, a company level, strategy is really having the courage to make choices. It's about deciding when you're firing bullets and when you're firing cannonballs. And the strategic question is, if I'm going to say yes to this, what must I say no to? And to to circle all the way back to Jim Collins, it's like the reason people don't fire the cannonball is they haven't got clear on what they're saying yes to and therefore what they must say no to. And what that does is it really makes clear the opportunity cost of you not committing and the cost of you committing. And you want to know both of these things. One of the things that overwhelms us at work is our overcommitment. We're all too busy. We've all got too much stuff going on. And that's because it's easy to give a lazy yes. You know, it's like no, it's less conflict. You look like you're keen. You look like you're helpful. You look like you're doing your best, and that's what you're that's generally how most of us are trying to show up. But it's it's meaningless because we're pouring water into a full glass at this stage. It's like it's not that helpful. You're just getting water all over the floor. Right. So this is really about that making a choice. If I'm going to say yes to that, what will I say no to? So that's the strategy question. The other question, the seventh question that's in the book, but not in the the workshop I'll be running at the conference is the lazy question. And people will like this because most of the people listening here have a tendency to jump in and try and fix, solve, save, be responsible for the people they manage, they lead, they work with, they influence. And one of the core behaviors we're looking to try and create to help people be more coach-like is to stop that, stop the rescuing, stop the leaping in. So the lazy question is all about how do you ask the question that helps you stay a little lazier, a little longer. And when I tell you the question, it won't even sound like a lazy question because the question is how can I help? Or more bluntly, what do you want from me? And while that sounds like you're actually asking for more work, What it's actually doing is saying, tell me what you really want from me, because I'm otherwise making some assumptions. I'm just leaping in and thinking, I think I know what you want, and I'm going to just start doing it. Whereas what this does is going, look, before I rush in and start fixing it, solving it, saving it for you, tell me what you really want, and I'll give you a yes or a no or a maybe in response to that. And actually, I'll be more mindful and thoughtful about what I actually end up doing. So those are the two the two bonus questions.
0: I love it. Man, I had, you know, I, I read those and um, that second one, that lazy question, I almost had such a breakthrough with that as you're talking about that because... You think about, this goes back to the, the danger of jumping to advice too soon, right? We talked about the advice monster. And of course, the risk there is we didn't even talk about this yet. But when you jump to advice, there's a risk that you haven't even really gotten to the true challenge yet.
1: No, you, 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 I mean, it's not even a risk. It's like a cold dead certainty for like 98% <laughs> of the judges. Like you think you know what the problem is. It's, you, don't know, you don't know what the real problem is. Right. You're solving the wrong problem.
0: Yeah, you haven't asked enough questions to get to the underlying like, issue.
1: Right. And then your advice isn't even very good. So now you're offering up slightly crappy advice to solve the wrong problem.
0: Right. And, and when we do, we often create work for ourselves, right? I'm thinking about a conversation I had with a friend right before you and I got on this interview. I was telling him about a challenge I had and he immediately referenced a podcast interview and said, I'll go dig that up and send it to you. Now, he doesn't even know if that's something that's going to help me or not, right? Because we didn't really discuss it, but he just created extra work for himself.
1: Yeah, uh, rookie mistake,
0: rookie mistake there. <laughs> so is that is that one of the dangers there too? That you know, by if you don't ask this lazy question, you're now creating extra work for yourself by offering things and then signing up to help with stuff you don't even know it's the right solution.
1: Well, so I think there are three levels. One is you don't know what the right problem is. But let's say miraculously you've had the discipline or good luck to figure out what the real challenge is. Now you're offering up what you think are good ideas, but they might not actually be the really good ideas. But let's say you actually figured out what the real challenge is and you figured out a brilliant solution to that real challenge. The third level is this. It's more profound, which is, is this the leadership that's required right now? Because you offering the suggestion is a disempowering moment for the person receiving suggestion. I know one of your your kind of standard questions. If you like, uh, what's a what's a book that's been influential for you? Right. So I'm going to leap in and I'm going to tell you the answer to that, which is I'm going to reference Ed Schein's work. So Ed Schein, uh, spelled S C H E I N, he was an MIT professor. He's now living out on the West Coast, and um, he's just been a great thinker for years. I mean, he's in his seventies or eighties now, I think, and. He originally did stuff around career anchors and then really influential around the the whole culture and culture change world. His the Corporate Culture Survival Guide is a classic on that topic. His last three books have been around... The first one was called Helping. The second one is called Humble Inquiry. And the most recent one is called Humble Leadership. And in Helping, he just points to this very paradoxical dynamic which is the act of trying to help somebody creates resistance to the help that's being offered. Because when you are helping somebody, you are in what Shine would call a one-up position. You've got authority, control, resource, knowledge, all of that. The person you're helping, the victim, they don't have any of that. And the act of trying to force help on somebody disempowers them and creates resistance to that help. So. Even if you know what the challenge is, even if you know what the best answer is, it's a really good question to ask yourself and knowing all of that, should I still offer up the answer? Because it's an equation, which is, is my slightly better answer delivered by me a better long-term result than them coming up with a slightly worse answer generated and owned by them? And there's there's not a set answer. Sometimes your answer is the best answer but much less than you think
0: yeah it's so true right and if you just ask more questions people usually and one of the when i went through coaching certification or whatever you know i learned one of the core tenets is most people have the answers within them right you just need to ask enough questions to get to that and help them access that answer
1: yeah and and sometimes they don't sometimes you need to give advice sometimes they don't know what they don't know but right. it's amazing when you help somebody find what the real challenge is, as soon as people get that aha moment as to what the real challenge is, how quickly they figure out what they want to do as a result of that.
0: Yeah. And they may not even want anything from you. They may just want to vent, right? And right. they just think it through. And now you, exactly. they can go
1: on their way and you've helped. So they come into your office
0: or you know, email
1: or phone or whatever. And they go, Bla, blah, 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 <laughs> blah. And, you know, your advice monster, of course, comes up out of the dark going, oh, my goodness, there's so much going on here. I'm just going to add value immediately to this conversation. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> but instead, because you've heard this conversation or you've read the book or you've come to the conference, you go, wow, a lot going on there. What do you want from me? Or well, how can I help here? And they go, I don't want anything from you. I just wanted to bitch and moan for Five minutes. They're like, awesome. Well, you're done. Come
0: back anytime. See you later. No
1: way so I can get on with all the stuff that I actually have to do. They're like, thank you. And no, you're like, no, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) And you're done. Awesome. Rather than going, oh, there's another bird and another stick I picked up and carrying around for somebody else.
0: Love it. All right. So you mentioned some of my standard questions. I don't. Um, we don't have time to get into all of those. I do want to ask you what's been your biggest failure or mistake? Because I feel like you probably have a good story for that.
1: I, I have never failed. You <laughs> know what you're talking about.
0: I've heard you talk about you know dealing with failure and, and how that's uh, that's so important. Yeah.
1: Look, I mean, actually, honestly, the failure part is the, always the more interesting part of the story. You know, when it's why when you read out the the bio of me, I'm like sued by this person and uh, First piece of writing was a Harlequin romance and blah, blah.
0: That's what people want to hear about.
1: Yeah, because it makes you human. You know, when, when you hear a, a talker or a speaker and they're like, look at all their awards and look how flawless their life has been. You're like, A, I don't believe you. B, I'm slightly bored by that. And thirdly, I'm intimidated by it. That's right. That's hopeless. So I've failed and continue to fail <laughs> in many ways. I tell you the thing that's, that I've been sitting with recently So Box of Crayons, my company is a training company, a learning and development company, and we've been growing fast for the last three or four years in part fueled by the book. And when you're growing a company, there are kind of plateaus you hit, kind of revenue plateaus. It's just a a marker for that where everything that got you there stops working. All the systems melt. Everything falls apart. What got you there won't won't get you there, right? Exactly. It's kind of messy and it's hard. But the hardest thing is not the systems failing, it's the people who carried you so far are no longer the people that will, you need to get to the next phase. And it's hard to have that conversation with people. And we've had a couple of times in the last little while where I've hoped it wasn't happening. Feeling <laughs> like it would be really good if this person just somehow miraculously pulled it together and sorted themselves out and became the person I want them to be, and not acting soon enough on that, not being courageous enough to have that conversation to point out what wasn't working to set standards around it to set consequences around it you know has it's cost the company money to fix that, but it's also been a burden i've had to carry for too long but it's also not fair to that other person who i had not actively managed in a way that i should have so i would say yeah that's the thing i'm i'm you know it's still the edge for me which is having the courage to have those hard conversations
0: yeah and it's hard to have those conversations and so we and we don't want to hurt people so we let them stay too long and i don't have a lot of experience with this but what i've seen over the years is that a lot of times it works out well for those people because they needed to go do something else. Right. And we're almost like doing them a disservice by not letting them go.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I sit with that and I go, that may be true for some people and may not be true for some people. And I can't really take responsibility for that because it's their lives. And do I sacrifice what Box of Crowns is providing to other people and the future and the impact we want to have in the world because I'm too scared to have that conversation. Right. That's what I'm trying to learn. About. And I hope it works out better for them. I hope they're happier once they leave the job that they're struggling at and all of that. But I also recognize that I don't want to buy into the magical thinking that I've actually been helping them by going through this because it's a, it's a really hard process to get fired. Yeah, It's like firing somebody's hard, but not as hard as being fired.
0: No doubt, no doubt. Um, Okay, so a couple more questions. Yeah. Are there any trends? You work with a lot of people in L&D, talent development. Any big trends, like one big trend that you're following or seeing right now changing how things are being done?
1: Well, this is a little self-serving, but there is this trend to just coaching being seen as a business driver, not an HR skill. And the idea of going, look, we need our leaders and our managers to be more coach-like not just because we need our people to be engaged, but because you need to embody the future culture of our company or we're trying to be innovative here. We're trying to be agile. We're trying to be change resilient. And coaching is just the foundation leadership behavior that feeds into that. So what's front and center for us is these conversations about coaching being more foundational and more strategic.
0: I think that's absolutely true, and I'm seeing greater demand on that, and, and greater supply as well. As there, you know, a lot of coaching companies popping up, coaching at scale. I have a partnership uh, and can provide coaching to clients. I know you do a lot of coach training yep. um, for clients. As companies are paying more attention and saying, okay, this is a more of a business need than just this, like, oh, nice HR thing. Okay, last question, Michael. Uh, most of my listeners are in talent development, um, often looking for ways to accelerate their career. I know you work with a lot of these people. What's one more piece of advice you would give to help them? accelerate their careers. You mean having
1: just spent an hour talking about not giving advice, you'd like me to offer up and finish up on a piece of
0: advice? That's right. But we'll tell people to take take it with a grain of salt.
1: We'll all pause on the irony of that. <laughs> so there's a, a book I referenced earlier called Do More Great Work. And the model that underlies it is a simple one. It says, look, everything you do falls into one of three different buckets. It's bad work, it's good work, and it's great work. Bad work is, if you like, mind-numbing soul-sucking bureaucracy, you know what I'm talking about. Good work is your job description, so productive, efficient, getting things done. Great work is the work that has more impact.
0: If you're looking for a place to connect with colleagues and peers from your industry and find out what other people in talent development are working on, you need to check out the brand new Talent Development Think Tank membership community. Inside, we have members from companies all over the world who are working on all different things in talent development and sharing what's been working, what's been not working, and answering each other's questions so we can all get our jobs done more effectively and be more successful in our careers. If you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you. Just head on over to tdtt.us slash community, and you can use code HOTSEAT for 25% off your subscription. That's tdtt.us slash community and use code hot seat for a limited time for 25% off your subscription. If you have any questions, reach out to me and let me know and we'll see you there.
1: Packed in the work that has more meaning. So I would say that if you're in this world of talent development, it'd be interesting for you to take a quick audit of your work life right now, draw a circle. Divided into three segments that represent how much bad work, good work, and great work you're currently doing. Maybe write down an example or two of each type of work for you. And then ask yourself, are you happy with that? If I was a betting man, I would say probably not, because most of us aren't. Most of us are like, ah, you know, I would prefer to have more great work and a little less of the other stuff. So now the question is, how do you get a little more great work in your life? You know, and you need focus and you need courage and you need resilience to do that. But great work won't just come to you. I mean, it might. There's there's a chance of that. But it's a question of taking responsibility for your own freedom, that Peter Block quote that I referenced before to say, look, I need to shape my destiny around here. I think the way to do that is you do it through the work. I mean, you be smart about a bunch of things, but it's like if you're doing great work by living up to your values, by doing work that actually has an impact, but also has meaning for you, that's a way that you you make a difference to the world and you live a better life.
0: I love it. Uh, Speaking of doing great work, uh, this has been fantastic. For anybody listening uh, who wants to find out more about the great work you've been doing, where's the best place for them to go? That's a really good
1: question. So our corporate training website is boxofcrayons.com. So that's kind of like how you buy our programs to bring you into your organization. So it's probably not what you're looking for. If you're interested in the in the book, thecoachinghabit.com is a place where there's a ton of resources. You can download some free chapters, videos, a bunch of stuff there. So if you'd like to just pillage that website, you're welcome to. If you go to michaelbungaystania.com, There's nothing there other than a sign-up page to say, here's a way of downloading a a report. And you'll get early access to figuring out when the new book comes out. So I'm going to set up a a cool pre-publication giveaway there. So you might want to go to michaelbungaystania.com.
0: Great. We'll put all those links in the show notes. And uh, I'm looking forward to that next book. We'll have you back on when the new book comes out. Thank you. And... Don't forget that Michael will be speaking at the first ever Talent Development Think Tank where he will be talking about the five-question leader and sharing those questions this November 6th and 7th the Sonoma, California.
1: In just to come, they're going to be talking about the first Talent Development Think Tank and were you there? So make sure you're there.
0: Yeah, make sure you're there. Get your tickets at talentdevelopmentthinktank.com. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the Talent Development Hot Seat. This has been... Awesome. It's been so great talking with you. I know it's been valuable for our listeners as well. And uh, thank you again. Thanks, my friend. Take care. Hey, friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Talent Development Hot Seat. I am always grateful for everyone who tunes in, who listens, who subscribes, and who have left reviews for our podcast on iTunes. By the way, if you haven't done that yet, it would mean the world to me. Head on over to iTunes, take one minute, write a quick review, It helps our podcast grow, and I really appreciate your support. As my gift to you, I have created a report of the top five trends. Impacting Talent Development this year. And if you haven't grabbed that report yet, you can head on over to advantageperformance.com slash trends. That's advantageperformance.com slash trends. You can download my report of the top five trends impacting talent development in 2019, as well as sign up for our newsletter to get updates on everything that is going on. Thanks again for tuning in. Thanks for listening to the Talent Development Hot Seat. If you got value out of this show, please subscribe, leave a review, and share with your colleagues and friends. We want to spread the word and add as much value to the talent development community as possible, and we need your help. As always, you can find more information and connect with me at talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. Take care.